Dear fellow redeemed, we consider briefly our gospel reading from the gospel of Luke chapter 15, and especially the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son, or the lost sons, however you term it. And the interesting thing about um, Luke chapter 15 is that Jesus and Luke record for us the exact context and the exact audience. You have that there at the very beginning in verses 1, 2, and 3. The Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then we have a succession of parables that one sheep out of 100 is lost And then one coin out of ten is lost. And then one son out of two is lost. And when he tells these parables, he's telling them with a very pointed application at those Pharisees, at those experts in the law, who think that they understand how God should act. They think they understand the way the world works. And they think, well, God's grace... But why is Jesus eating with them? Didn't he see the arrest report last week? Didn't he see the the tattoos or the drug abuse that is so evident here? Doesn't he realize that these people aren't the kind of people that, um, that we should be having here? That's their mindset. And when Jesus starts in with his first parable... And then the second, and then finally the third, he demonstrates very clearly and very forcibly exactly what God's grace looks like. Now, if you think back to your catechism Sunday school definition of grace, um, God's undeserved love for sinners. Grace being God gives us what we don't deserve. It's the flip side of mercy where God doesn't give us what we do deserve, That is to say that God withholds his judgment and justice against those who have rightly earned it because he poured it out on his son instead. Because that's that's the linchpin that holds those two concepts together and which makes the Christian declaration of grace something that is different from anything else in the world. Because everything else in the world either demands, A, that you make up for what you did, and you atone for what you did, or B, that it doesn't matter, and we all just need to shrug it off because that's what love is. But God's definition of grace and mercy interlinked and joined there at the cross of Christ, where he poured out on him instead of us, his wrath, so that he can demonstrate to us his attitude of forgiveness, this ongoing attitude of love toward us, where God himself has defined what love is because God is love. That's what grace is, God's undeserved love for sinners. And with that all in the background, you have to understand then, Jesus hears what they are saying. Jesus hears the mumbling and the muttering. And he, concern, he concerns himself with these Pharisees just as much as with those tax collectors and the prostitutes. Because the issue isn't what they look like or what they've done. The issue isn't what, um, you know, whether they have tattoos or not, because that doesn't matter. The issue is, 
where they know they stand with God and why. Because the Pharisees are so totally convinced, totally convinced that, well, God should be the one patting us on the head and Jesus shouldn't be eating with them. He should be eating with us and making sure that we are showered with lavish praise. And so Jesus tells this parable, this particular parable, to demonstrate to those Pharisees where they actually stand. Because what we have are, are these two sons who both need, they both need the love of their father. And these two sons who are so caught up in what they want and what they think will bring them happiness and pleasure and lasting joy, and they're so caught up in that mindset that all they can see when they look at dad is dollar signs. Dad, why don't you die so I can get my inheritance? He didn't say it quite like that, but that's exactly what he said. Dad, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to have to wait the 10, 20, 30 years because that first son that first son didn't care for his dad. He just thought to himself, well, I want to go have a good time. He thought to himself, I, I've been making a pretty decent job, but inflation being what it is, maybe I can just um, go, go off to a distant country all by myself. And if I get a portion of dad's net worth to do with whatever I want, then hey, all the better. Even though he wasn't entitled to half of his dad's net worth, he was entitled to like a third of it. This generous father sits down and takes the time and meets with his CPA to figure out the value of his land, the value of his animals, the value of his property, the value of his perhaps rental income, factor in the social security payouts and whatever um, other pension would be involved. And then maybe he sells some of it off and he writes a check. And that first son, man, starts waving it. He says, all right, I'm out of here. I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time with my parents anyway. I want to go somewhere else so that I'm not under their thumb and I don't have to live by their rules and their restrictions. I don't have to be bound by guilt in seeing what, what they would expect from me. He goes off to this distant country far away from everyone that he might know, all the relatives and neighbors who would go back to mommy and daddy and tell him exactly what he was doing. And all of a sudden, it looks like he has so many friends until the money runs out. And the other son, he hears what his younger brother does and he shakes his head and maybe he squirrels away some of it. When dad says, go count the sheep and the goats and the, the cows, he says, well, it was only 150 when it was 250. And he's diligently picking rocks and doing the backbreaking work, thinking that maybe, just maybe, if he does the right thing, then he'll be entitled to dad's wealth when he's gone. That, that first son already got half of it, but we've got half of it here, and if I work hard at it, 
And if I follow all the, all the advice and all the rules, then, then I can still turn a profit from this. And if our time horizon till dad kicks the bucket is a good 15, 20 years, then I should have a pretty easy nest egg after that. And I can take it easy. As long as I put in the work now. Because it's still dad's stuff. Two sons. The one so interested in his father's wealth and not caring a thing for his father, wanting to be free from dad by running away and being free from all these supposed external regulations, being free from the bounds and boundaries of God's law, being free to indulge in whatever money you'll buy. And the second son, also, also loving the things that dad's wealth could do for him. And thinking to himself, if I just um, cut a few corners here and put in a little bit more time there, then I can be financially independent and retire early by the time I'm 35 or maybe 38, depending on how long dad holds on. And that second son thought he was doing it correctly because he was doing all the work on the farm and the estate and he was following all the rules and he was putting on a good face and he was getting up early for work and staying late and smiling and talking with mom and dad and it looked like everything was okay. But inwardly, inwardly, if he had the guts he would have done exactly what that prodigal son had done. The prodigal, the one who is so overly lavish, the one who spends like there's no tomorrow, who spends without looking at price tags or even caring about it. Two sons, both equally lost. The one lost by rejecting the rules, and the other lost by following the rules. And each one equally lost because they didn't care a single bit about their father, only what their father could give, give to them or get for them. And in between, here's this father. As he wakes up each day wondering and waiting and watching for word from the younger son, wondering how it's going to turn out for him, and, and knowing deep down that, well, the school of hard knocks is the more difficult path. It's easier to pay attention to the school of words and to be taught that way, but the school of hard knocks is the more difficult path, and um, the lessons there are very thorough. And he wakes up each morning Maybe sits down with the newspaper <laughs> and drinks his coffee and strains his eyes to scan the horizon, watching and waiting. One son who disregarded the father through revelry, through, um, through just giving up and trying to push away any restriction, and the other son disregarding his father and saying, as long as I follow the restrictions and I follow the rules, then I'm the good one and I will be rewarded in the end for what I have done. And there in between, 
this father who loves them both and who sees them both as equally lost, scanning the horizon each day, waiting for the money to run out and the sun to come running back. And one day he does. And one day he does. And the son has all these things prepared to say after he's been starving and thinking, hey, the compost looks pretty good. He's been starving. And, and he says he's got, he's got his speech all planned out. Look at what he says. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make, make me like one of your hired servants. And as he's coming back, he sees this dust cloud kick up as his father runs to him. Like, you're thinking, as an adult, there are very few, th very few times that you go for a run or that you run towards something, and, and if you do, somebody pulls over and says, are you okay? <laughs> or what's the danger? Or do you need me to call the police? But even more so, if you think of somebody like, um, I don't know, Benjamin Netanyahu. If you remember him, he was uh, the Prime Minister of Israel for a period of time. And he kind of had this perpetual scowl as he tried to protect his little nation from everyone that would want to destroy it. Do you think he ran anywhere? <laughs> no. Like, he's this guy that, that walks up a simple and slow stride and everybody else waits for him because he's the most important one. And that's the culture where this father lives. That father, a man of wealth and importance and reputation, wouldn't run anywhere. He'd be the one showing up late and walking in, and everybody would be standing until he sat down. But this father, who's been scanning the horizon, sees off in the distance his son, and he hitches up his robes, and he starts running. And the son gets through part one. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he gets through part two. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off before he says, make me like one of your servants. Because the son had come to realize how he had tried to run away from all the restrictions and all the rules and all the everything that his father had put on him, so he thought. And his mindset was, I have to work my way back into his good graces. I have to undo what I've done. And I have to somehow pay him back for what I've done. And the father cuts him off. Quick. Bring the best robe. Get the ring on his finger. Make him a full member of this family again. Again, with all the rights to inheritance and property, with uh, the, the power of attorney already in place and his place in the will secured. And kill the fattened calf because my son was dead and is alive again. That's grace. The other son. The other son thinking that all of his time and all of the inputs and all of the sweat and all of the effort somehow should have earned for him a little bit of recognition. What's the party about? He didn't even get called in. What's the party about? Why is everybody rejoicing when this son of yours, he says to his father, that son of yours, 
Why are you welcoming him back? Don't you know what he did? Don't you remember what he said? And the father turns it around. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. And the question, I guess, which of the two was more lost? (laughs) Jesus is speaking the parable against these Pharisees who were still caught in their idea of doing earns God's goodness. That living up to the rules and the regulations is what makes me a member of the family. And therefore, anybody who doesn't is somebody that I can count as an outcast and somebody that that doesn't belong here. And the other son, equally lost, except he came to know it. He came to repentance and he returned and threw himself at the feet of his father and thinking that he still had to earn his way back in. But the father responding with grace. God's undeserved love for sinners. The father responding with grace to say, here, full restoration and the past has been forgiven and forgotten and the attitude of the father toward the child is what it was all along. And the attitude of the father toward the other child, the one who is there, is still the same. He loves him and leaves us all with a cliffhanger at the end in verses 31 and 32. You are always with me and all that I have is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And it's simple enough to sympathize with perhaps one son or the other and to miss the point that the grace of God is pictured in the love of that father toward these two sons, neither of whom deserved that love and both of whom both (laughs) cared more about themselves than about that father. And all he wants is to be able to address them and talk to them and invite them and welcome them and celebrate with them. Fellow members of the the family of God, you aren't sitting here with a royal robe and a ring on your finger, and I don't think we have a fattened calf for fellowship time during Bible study today. (laughs) I think it's fruit and brownies. But at the same time, when we talk about God's grace, God's undeserved love for sinners, that image of the father running to his child and wrapping that child in his robe and giving that child a place in the family, a permanent place in the family, is exactly what God had done when you were baptized. It maybe didn't look like much, at least to our human perception. A little bit of water off the head and, you know, about half the time the baby starts crying anyway. But that's the place that you have in the family of God. And the image of of a baby being baptized is as helpless as you can get. I mean, this child doesn't even know how to put himself or herself to sleep. This child doesn't know how to clean up after themselves or even feed themselves. They're totally helpless. And yet they're at the font 
God reign to you? But the difficult part, especially as we go through life, is being bombarded by all that we see around us and the desires that spring from within us, and we lose sight of a Father's love for us. And maybe at different points in our lives, we're one son or the other, or sometimes both. As long as I follow the rules in the right place, and then I've got the freedom in this other place, and um, whatever, Dad will be there whenever I get back. Is it possible that that mindset has crept in among God's people? Just generally speaking, yes. <laughs> Is it possible that we get so caught up in this concept of God's love that we detach it from the cross of Christ? Or the concept of grace or mercy and detach it from the resurrection of Jesus? where our culture and this area, I mean, you can't drive across Toledo without seeing at least a dozen different churches. This culture and our area had been so well-churched at one time where everybody, it seems, has the same sort of background, the same basic background, the same understanding of a God who loves them. But that it is detached from the reality of a God who died for them. And the result that it's so easy to get sucked into just doing the right thing because you know what the commandments are or finding some way to have a little bit of the freedom that you desire from your religious upbringing. <laughs> One or the other. And missing out on the love of a father which is found and distributed among his people. I had that conversation this last week. It wasn't much of a conversation, it was just a phone message. Hello, friend. I haven't seen you at church in a while. And I know life is busy and the, the kids are in, um, in activities. But I'd really hope to see you this Sunday or next. Because here, among God's people, we talk about things of eternal value. Not just of temporary, earthly value. See, it's still a question of value, but it's a value that is found in the cross of Christ and distributed among God's people here. Where you can, you can know that when your child was baptized at that font or one just like it, that God created faith within the heart of that child, and that when you talk to that child, even if that child doesn't, uh, can't talk back to you, <laughs> respond to you, that when you talk to that child about what Jesus has done for them in his dying and rising, that that is a certainty and that is a comfort and that is a clarity that you won't find anywhere else. That we don't just talk about some nebulous love of, from the big guy upstairs in the hopes that one day we'll go to the, the good place. No, we can talk with clarity to say we have a father who loved us because he gave his son up for us who shared our humanity so that no matter, 
No matter what it is that you've done or left undone, no matter how much shame you carry and guilt you might have over your past or worry that you might have over your future, that the love of your God is not grounded in what you do or what you've left undone, but that the love and grace of your God, this undeserved love of our Savior, is his ongoing attitude toward you for the sake of his Son. And that's as certain as the footsteps of Jesus outside the tomb on Easter Sunday. That historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead carries with it the spiritual reality that your sin is forgiven and gives power to the exact things that our Lord has given to his church. Because sometimes the sons in the family, the children in the family of God, need that encouragement. Always. And we gather around, not because it's something that we just do, but so that, so that Jesus gives you your forgiveness again. So that the Father is pictured running to you individually and personally. So that you can say with certainty that I know my God loves me because I tasted it. Because he promised it. Because he, he won it for me here, and he distributed it for me there. That our relationship with God doesn't depend on what we've done or left undone. That our expectations for God shouldn't hinge on, on how we think they deserve it and they don't, or vice versa. But entirely on the fact that even though Jesus did not deserve it, he chose it. And even though, even though we have done nothing to earn or deserve it, he gives it. That forgiveness of sins, that undeserved love for sinners, for you and for me. And Jesus wanted to make it so eminently clear that he tells this little story for you and for me, that we rejoice in our forgiveness again. That we see, you know, why do we exist as a congregation? Because this specific and clear and certain and comforting message is something that, that we all need to hear. And that each of us and those that we all know have that same inclination to either follow the rules or to run away from the rules. But here, the linchpin of our salvation linking together God's mercy where he withholds his wrath from us and God's grace where he gives his love to us. The linchpin holding it all together is right here where Jesus distributes his forgiveness. And he says, dear friend, take and eat, take and drink. Welcome to the family. It's not a fattened calf. It's the son of God. Amen.